once they have all that sort of quantitative stuff, then the next stage is usually, okay, can we meet a couple of staff? Or they, they, they would go to a due diligence and sample files. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 217 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When you sell your accounting practice, choosing the right buyer is crucial. It will determine how much cash you walk away with and how many headaches you will suffer until you do. If you choose the wrong buyer, clients are more likely to leave, reducing your final payout. If you choose the right one, you get a smoother transition and most clients are likely to stay. So what do you look for? How do you choose the right buyer? This is the question I asked Matthew Taylor, a business broker for accounting practices. Free C's is something that I talk to vendors looking to sell their practice to give them a bit of a guide roadmap of how to select that buyer because there is a lot more buyers than sellers. So people looking for a succession plan do have a bit of a choice. So the first thing I say to them, let's consider the character of that buyer. How do you feel when you're talking to them? How do you imagine that particular accountant in front of your clients speaking to your staff? Think about how they the reaction of your clients and how you feel because the reality is whoever you sell to, you're probably going to have to work with them for the next six to 12 months as a part of a transition handover the business. So if you're uncomfortable around this person, you probably haven't found your buyer. The next thing as, as on the theme of the, the three C's is... So that is the first that's C? That's the first C, character. character. Yeah. I can actually expand that a little bit further. I actually like to include also culture in that. So while I am talking about the principle buying out a practice, also... Mm-hmm. You should aim to, and that's why I often suggest the first meeting to be actually at the buyer's premises to get a bit of a feel for the culture of the place. Maybe you can look at their website, have a look at the staff profiles and see whether you think that this is a good fit for the clients that you're looking to transition to the new practice. So character culture, that's the first C, (laughs) even though I've thrown an extra one in there. The next one is capability. If you've got a particular specialization. Actually, I came across a practice today that works in film and was quite interesting because there's royalties involved and there's government assistance in movie credits and all kinds of uh So that wasn't an accounting practice. It wasn't accounting practice. They did oh, all it the was. yes, they did all the audits for the film productions and they also did the financials. So when a new television series is being made, they'll set up a new entity every time for that particular TV show or movie or whatever they're producing. So I had a chat to this guy and I think what was interesting about that is when you've got such a specific specialisation, you need to make sure that that practice can handle it. So have they got that capability, skill set? If you're a medico practice that deals a lot of pharmacy, do they understand the pharmacy business? You need to make sure that if it's got a lot of self-managed supers, whoever's taking over that business or that firm that's going to look to buy you out, do they have that ability to run what you've been doing? If it's an eye return practice, it's probably not going to have that capability. Um, if you're selling eye returns, then 
probably it's a probably okay any kind of practice is probably going to fit in saying that you probably want to make sure that there's a likeness so that the deal goes as smoothly as possible so that brings me to the final c uh the most important one it's c for cash no it's it's actually not c for cash but close enough it, it's it's for capacity the obvious thing is can this particular buyer afford your practice because there's no point going down the path of having meetings and having a look at their skill sets and finding out they're a great bloke or great woman, but they can't actually come up with the financial capacity to, to be able to pay for the business. And I also include that capacity there, that the ability to transition the business smoothly. So while some smaller practices you might find get taken over by one person coming into the business and even sitting in the same seat the previous vendor did, previous principal did, I generally often advise that the purchasing party should be two to three times the size of the practice that is selling. So I know that they've got that. Firstly, they could probably raise the funds because they're a much larger practice and they could probably afford the business. And secondly, when they do buy the business, they're going to be able to look after all the clients, which, you know, of course is so important. So you shouldn't go for a practice that is larger than 25% of your current turnover. So if you have a million-dollar practice, you can easily cope with 250,000 extra sales. Or let's say if you have a $4 million turnover practice, you can add on another million. But You're absolutely spot on. That's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, if it's a $500,000 or a $250,000 practice and you're looking to sell to another $250,000 practice, they're doubling their business overnight. Now, maybe on those numbers they can make it work. But if you're talking about a $500,000 or a million dollar practice, another million dollar practice isn't probably going to be able to handle that integration. It's just probably too much of a leap forward. And while they might have the appetite, they might be pretty keen to grow. And of course, acquisition is a fantastic way to, to grow your business. Hence, that's why there's a lot more buyers than sellers. At the same time, it's got to be the right party because I suppose this all comes back to one of the keys to this is that generally these businesses are sold on some kind of terms, some kind of earnout. not all the money's paid up front, vendor finance is obviously the other terminology used. And so you want to make sure that business can take on all the clients, manage all the fees, and hopefully keep every client so that you get paid in full when you do sell. But that also explains why there are so many medium and large practices buying small practices and why there are only very few small practices that buy small practices. Yeah, well, I suppose it, it also comes down to a bit of a risk appetite. So if you are a bit larger, you probably want to take advantage of utilisation of all the staff as well. So a practice that might be sort of hitting that two, three to $6 million range has probably got a bit of excess capacity within, is more likely to have a bit of excess capacity. And they're also probably pretty keen to take on some more talent into the business and take on the staff. Well, if you get a much at the smaller end, they're probably already all working flat out. It's a bigger financial transaction, more risk involved. So you're right. It's, this is probably why you're going to see in the future more and more of the sole practitioners disappearing and more medium to larger size accounting firms emerging. Let me paint a, a scenario and then forward a suggestion. And that is when you're selling an accounting practice and you have a few buyers putting up their hand and some of them are already quite large, have already done a few transactions 
have already done quite a few acquisitions, know exactly what they're looking for, have very realistic ideas about price. And then there's a small practitioner who's never bought another practice, is quite shy and tedious. I can imagine you will devote your time and resources a lot more to these large practices because I can imagine they are much more smooth sailing and they're probably also more likely buyer. Yes, <laughs> but I'll probably let you know that often the vendor has a preference to go for this smaller practice as their buyer because they believe more of their identity will be kept. You can imagine if you built your, your firm up to $600,000 fees and it rolls into a $10 million practice, the clients are probably going to be dispersed amongst a number of different accountants within the firm, some junior, some very senior. Whereas if they're selling it to a smaller practice, they probably know that the more senior accountant or the the main two sort of partners in the firm are probably going to be the ones looking after the client. So I'll be directed a little bit by the vendor. If I push and test and stress test the purchaser, I'm more than happy to put the time in to guide them to get a transaction to work. So while I suggest that in many cases, the buyer is going to be much larger than the vendor. It's not in every case. It can be a little bit case by case. Some vendors, a lot of vendors actually own the premises. So the idea of someone coming into their practice and continuing on the operations, there's no disruption to staff, there's no disruption to clients. It can be a lot more seamless process. A smaller firm is probably more likely to be able to move into their premises than, of course, a much larger firm. And keep the brand. Keep the branding. Which is usually their surname. I just had that exact discussion today with someone who is using their first and second name and co added or associates. And we do see that a bit of surname and associates, similar to legal firms, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an element of wanting to keep that legacy. I mean, even the largest firms like Price Waterhouse Coopers still got some surnames of the original partners. But of course, these days they've moved towards uh, acronyms. And, and we do see a lot more modern practices have names more like accountancy matters or accounting matters or tax matters and I suppose more business names that are generic however some of the older firms I deal with certainly that they are a bit more tied to the name of the business being themselves. That chance said the uh, seller puts a lot of value onto the brand but the brand is usually very little worse because most sellers want to integrate the parcel of fees into their current practice. Yes, it, it is quite interesting that a lot of vendors do attach quite a bit of value to their reputation and understandably so because over the years they've had referrals and they've had lots of different praise of the work they've done and, and I'd have to say broadly speaking most accountants are very, very good at what they do and I think that what they charge is very, very reasonable for the quality of work. And I suppose... It's natural to think that there is some value in the identity that you've established. However, from a buyer point of view, what they're looking to do is add some top line income, hopefully not change the expense or the cost base too much and see a lot of it move to the bottom line. And so, yes, if we want to have a ruthless look at it, it's, it's a grab for fees to make more money and to be able to utilise the existing infrastructure. However... There is a balance there. I mean, certain accountants have built certain reputations and I'm sure the better the reputation, the more likely the transition is going to go well and the clients are going to give the new firm a go. However, I get people say how great their website is or their logo is or their business name is and 
I hate to say it, but I think uh, Ed's right on this one. <laughs> Not a lot of value. How often do you see a small practice buying another small practice? Is that reasonably rare or still happens quite a lot because the seller really would like to keep their legacy? I would say if you had asked this, this question five years ago, it was 50-50. And probably it's partly to do with the space I work in. So I deal with a lot of sole practitioners. I, I do some succession planning work with larger firms and some valuation work with multi-partner firms. But most of those guys are buying each other out. So I generally dealing at the sole practitioner end and probably often quite at the lower end of fees. And part of the reason they're getting out is because they're not really making a lot of money. You know, some are working 60 hours a week and making 60 to $80,000 out of the business and they could probably sell their business for 250000 Now, if they're above 65 years of age, it's quite tempting to go. So those smaller practices have been acquired in the past by, you know, usually one guy who's already gone out of his own and working from home. That was about 50-50. Now I'd say it's probably only about 20%, one in five. And it's really only the practices that have turnover less than 500,000. I think it's a big financial ask. I mean, I think this is why where we would have historically seen staff buy out practices and they would take a piece of equity and they'd stay on and they'd slowly get bought out over a longer term. I think the risk appetite for younger accountants of say Gen X and Gen Y to, to buy into a firm, it's, it's not as attractive as it used to be. They'd rather work for a very large firm than actually buy out their boss. <laughs> When you set the price based on sales, I think it goes between 0.8 to 1.2 on a dollar for dollar basis. When you look at sales, dollar for dollar, you look at current sales, but the prices of the buyer might be higher or lower. Would you then still go by the seller's price or would you adjust it for what the buyer is probably going to charge? I think it's something for all accountants to consider that it is becoming more commoditized. Many of the services, obviously some of the advice side isn't, but you're right, you can find someone uh, cheaper and, you know, and for example, for self-managed super fund audits, you know, they would have been $800 a lot of the time and you can see people get audits done for $300 or $250 even by offshoring it. And But what I would say with that though, A lot of the time in my space that I work, it's actually the opposite problem. It's I've actually found that a lot of the accountants haven't moved their prices up, hence they're undercharging. So when the larger firm is looking at the work, they're often saying, There's hang no on, money in there. Yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> It does remind me, and I shout out to my accountant in Hyatt there, Alex. I actually, I don't know if I should be telling this story, but actually I, I did show another accountant his work and said, oh, what, what do you think? Because he, he was taking a bit of time to do the work and I wanted it done. And he handed it back and he said, I'd be, I'd be double this. So that you do have that issue where some accountants, I've probably had a very, very long relationship with that accountant over 20 years. So maybe he gives me a very good deal. I think he does. But there is that reluctance for accountants to put up their fees in the latter stage of their careers because they don't want to lose the clients. And what can actually happen is they actually start becoming under market. And then when someone goes to buy them, they say, we can't do this work at this price. And the concern is they put the fees up, the clients are going to leave. So I get more resistance the other way than, than the example you gave. Oh, really? Yeah. But in saying that, I think that there's so many buyers that generally there's still a fair bit of ability to, within reason, there's lots of little factors of what constitutes value of a practice. But I generally find people are prepared to pay very close to what the vendor is looking for. 
buyers are they usually per sale? I've heard a number of 100 that there are often 100 buyers to a sale. Is that is that realistic or does it vary a lot? I'd like to think that part of the value proposition that I offer as a broker is a fair bit of filtering. I don't think I would put a number like 100, but I did have a practice and it does the location matters. You know, in, in a Sydney, it's not uncommon to have 40, 50 inquiries. But when you filter down a lot of them, there's a lot of people, I think they just want to know who's selling, how much it is, a bit of benchmarking against their own practice. You can only learn from yes. asking. Yes, you can only learn. And, and, and sometimes people like the thought of acquiring to grow. I do pose this question to a lot of people and that's if you started again from scratch, do you think you could get to the size you are now? And most of them say no. They were just lucky they started when they did. And so acquisition is something I would say that if you want to become a larger practice, you've really got no choice because I think organic growth is is virtually impossible to do it at a rate that will build substantial scale. So you do get a lot of people inquire, but it comes back to often when I start to do my checking of these people, they're, they're not the right character or they're just... I can tell that they're probably not, once I have a chat to them on the phone and probe them a little bit about their financial capacity, they couldn't afford the practice. But that's okay. I'm happy to help these people and give them a bit of an explanation of of sales and what they're selling for. I think a lot of people are just interested to know who it is and why they're selling. So you might have 100 inquiries for a practice, but then your role is to filter it down and to get to three or four really strong buyers. That's what I really aim for. I think that... If you're really meeting more than six people and even four people, the broker's not doing their job, I would say that that's the typical amount of introductions I need to do somewhere between four and six to to find that right buyer. Sometimes the right buyer appears immediately. You know, you might only have two meetings and these businesses sell for a fairly tight range, right? So between the best and the worst offer, it's not going to be a lot. So I always talk to the the principal who's deciding to sell, you need to focus on the staff reaction and the client reaction and how you feel about the transaction more than just the price and the terms. Because talking about the price range, it varies between 0.8 to 1.2 on a dollar for dollar basis. I don't see many transactions go through at 1.2, but what I will say is parts of their business are valued that way. So typically I'll segment the revenue classifications, which typically against the type of tax return they're doing, whether it be an income or a trust or a partnership or a company, and then have a look at audit fees or valuation fees or consulting fees and and then sort of categorise that. So, yeah, the absolute, if you're in a major metropolitan region and it's full of self-managed super returns and high-value compliance work, sure, parts of those businesses will be worth 1.2. Oh, I yeah. see. So tell me what would be sitting, you, you hinted at it, tell me what would be sitting at 1.2 and what would be sitting closer to 0.8. Disregarding client-specific characteristics yeah, sure. like age and payment history, etc. but just the nature of the work. You indicated that SMSF is closer to the 1.2? Oh, certainly, because this is classified... What normally comes along with someone who happens to have a self-managed super fund 
is usually a discretionary a trust. Discretionary trust as well, a family trust as well, probably Bucket some other company, property assets, trading company. That's right. Yeah. So it's a reflection of the type of client there's likely, and then of course there's the add-on of the ability, as we've seen, a lot of accounting firms are moving towards more financial services firms. The advice piece is an opportunity. The lending piece becomes an an opportunity, and of course insurances not just financial planning, but, you know, we're seeing accounting firms be involved in general insurance. So it's a reflection of probably the ability to work with that client and provide multiple services, which also then flows onto the client being a lot more sticky. sticky. <laughs> I didn't know if I wanted to use that word or not. Mm, but I've heard it a few times. Yeah, it, it really is something which is uh, referred to as the clients that are, you know, are going to be reluctant to leave. And and this this is actually in every financial services, lots of the big financial planning firms and banks use different expressions like share of wallet and, and things like that. And and, and all the research. What is it? Share, share of wallet. A share of wallet. Well, yeah. So depending on, okay, with this person's financial services expenditure, so their accounting and their financial planning and their home insurance and their mortgages, how much are you capturing? And and a lot of the research shows that as soon as you have three products with one provider, so as an accountant, as long as you're providing, three, once you start providing three services, there's a, unless you're doing something very wrong, <laughs> they're very unlikely to leave. The reason why we're so sticky is it becomes hard to unwind. If you're already going to this particular firm to get your mortgage done and you bought an investment property through them and the accountant knows, you know, the accountant also manages your super and things like that, then this is why people will attribute a higher value to these types of clients. And business compliance work as well, that, that's closer to around that one times where the pressure has been and when they've talked about practice values going down, it more refers to the lower value income returns I deal with and sometimes you just look at it and have to go, Gee, that's a hard slog. You know, practices that are doing three thousand, two and a half thousand dollar tax returns, and and averaging, you know, hundred and eighty dollars a return, and that's inclusive of ones that might be sole traders that they might charge three hundred to five hundred dollars for, because they're doing a whole bunch of sixty nine dollar returns. Now, that's a hard slog, and so sure, you can still even at ninety nine dollars make money from a client, but you need to be doing them back to back and. And have really fine-tuned work. And fine-tuned the working processes and everything like that. But some of those practices do work. I'm dealing with one at the moment that they actually book two years. They do pretty much primarily income returns. They are not a franchise. They're an independent. And they book out two years in advance. People come in, do the income return, and at the counter they'll book in for the next year. And often people ask, can they book for the following year? And I, I was just a bit amazed. But... I suppose if you've got a good service proposition and you're very fairly priced and you get to know the the clients and the clients get to know you, why wouldn't they just come back next year? Obviously, the ATO is looking at ways to reduce the amount of tax returns that get done externally through tax agents. Oh, really? Are they? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a definite move towards certain industries and the, the primary ones are going to be the usual type of um, PAYG salary earners like teachers, nurses, where they've really got pretty good data of what their likely deductions 
are going to be. So why does the ATO have an interest? Because they want teachers and nurses to save the money? Or is it because they see that returns that come to tax agents are a lot more aggressive when it comes to tax deductions? I don't think it's that as much as really streamlining their processes because if it's going via a tax agent, there's another person checking the work. And if the ATO can say, hey, we're going to give you $2,500 tax return because you've seemed to fit in this category where that would be a likely tax return you would receive and someone just has to go into their MyGov and say yes and doesn't have to provide any further information, I can imagine that the, that's quite a temptation for a lot of people um, not to have to worry about going to the accountant. Now, if they've... I can understand why the nurse or the teacher yes. would rather save the um, accounting fee. I yes. can understand And sometimes that. they might be on the end where they're actually going to get more back by accepting the ATO offer. Yeah, but I don't understand why the ATO has an interest whether something comes through a tax agent or not. I just think they want to streamline their processes just simply so they can process as many taxpayers as quickly as possible. And if it means that come July that they can issue people an automated return that's everything's pre-populated, do you accept yes or no? That's likely to happen. And that's part of the pricing pressure on the income returns. And the other thing, of course, is it's quite a competitive space because generally it's a less skilled return as opposed to, you know, looking at someone's trading business where a lot of skill may be taken. And and the ATO knows that they're not taking that type of work back. Can I come back to the three products you mentioned? You first mentioned the word share of wallet and then you said that you usually need three products to make a client really sticky. The three products is not three different entities, for example, that you would have a company, a trust, and an SMSF. With three products, you mean, for example, accounting services, a mortgage, and financial advice, correct? With products, that's, you don't mean the different entities, you mean different types of services. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm driving at. It was quite interesting, like five, ten years ago, when I would speak to an accountant about selling their practice... And of course, there's financial planners looking to buy accounting practices because it's an opportunity to provide those services. And, and often a financial planner would not be successful in acquiring because the accountant would say, well, okay, who's going to look after the clients? Oh, we'll hire someone. That's not going to fly with someone who's built this client base over 30 years. They want to know exactly who they're going to be dealing with. And but so what we've seen happen is a number of financial planning firms have actually built tax arms to their business. Or there'd be an accounting firm which has built a financial planning arm. They, they might have tried a referral program. They might have had JVs and then have said, no, we need to bring this in-house. But I think there's been, to get back to my original point, in the past there wasn't a big acceptance by accountants of having financial planning in the practice. They liked the idea of the independence and separating that out. But we're seeing now while there still might be completely different entities and obviously they fall under different licensings, We're seeing a lot more encompassing financial services type businesses and that's probably the way things will continue to drive. So they're going to have mortgage broking arms and they're going to have financial planning arms. And I'm even seeing some firms that have gone right down the path of having conveyancing business and or legal services as well. Can I talk to you about niche versus full service? I get two different messages. One message is, Find your niche, go really deep into it, 
be really good at one thing. And then on the other hand, full service accounting practices seem to be really good and they seem to be able to make a client a lot more sticky by offering accounting, financial services, mortgage brokering and a whole lot of other services, insurance, audit, etc., all under one roof. What's your impression? Yeah, well, I suppose if I look at myself, I'm a licensed real estate agent, which is the requirement in most of the states to be a business broker, and I just sell accounting firms. I do get involved in financial planning firms as well. So I suppose broadly speaking, I'm just in financial services. So I would say as a business broker, that's pretty niche. I mean, given I could be selling petrol stations and childcare centres and cafes, certainly there's a lot of cafes uh, bought and sold in Melbourne and Sydney. But I see the biggest benefit in being niche is one of understanding the terminology, the people. It's great for marketing because you can really get inside an industry and focus. You can focus. really hone your SEO. Yeah. Hone and, your SEO. And also you can really hone your f- workflows. Oh, absolutely. And also prote- can protect you a little bit from competitors because probably the person that you're dealing with knows that you have really that extra perception about the type of industry that you're servicing. So yeah. so just to give you an example, if you do 10 SMSFs per year, there is no way you can be as efficient with those 10 SMSFs as a practice who does 3,000 SMSFs per year. Well, the other thing too is how do you manage the, if you've got 10, you're unlikely to pay the subscription costs of a BGL or a class super. That's which, true, which, with class, because with class you need at least 22 funds to hit the standard price, but with BGL you can buy it in pasts of five. You, so you you're, can, you're, but you probably still, if you've got so few, do you want to roll another software into the business, another subscription cost, and then you find you end up doing it manually, so then the client's missing out on live feeds, You, if they're on an allocated pension, you... you you can't eat, you need to manually calculate what they still need to draw down by June. So there's, there's some massive advantages in some of these softwares and efficiencies. And so what you can offer the client is greater. So only having a few can, can really be open you up a little bit exposure, both on a time cost and a, and a profitability. But in saying that, I can see why a lot of accountants have only have small numbers of lots of different things because they take the work that they can get. And if the clients like what they do, and when it comes to sell, this, and I'll come back to your point about niching, because when you go to sell, it's a lot better if you've actually got a broad base of industries. Oh, is it? Yeah, because... So it's easier to sell a practice that has 20 SMSFs, 100 trading companies, and 50 discretionary trusts. I mean, talking of a really small practice, that is easier to sell than a practice that has 200 SMSFs? Broadly speaking, yes. because. One of the things that in terms of data collection that people want to see, they love to see what the top 10 clients or top 20 clients, how much the age of the directors, because that gives you a bit of an idea of how likely they'll continue in the business, the industry, because then they can see some industry concentration. So if every single one of them is a builder out of your top 10 clients and there's a building downturn, this might not be good. Same with retail. So if there's a mix, that takes out some concentration risk and then also the value of those clients. So if those clients, the, the biggest one is, you know, 20,000 and the smallest one is 18,000 out of your, or 15,000 out of your top 10, there's no real concentration risk. Where I've sold businesses where their typical fee would be about three and a half to five and a half thousand, 
but they had one client at 80,000, one client at 60,000. You know, when you're turning over 600,000 and you realize, you know, 30% of your revenue is from a couple of clients, there's a lot of risk in that. But that's not to say that you can't make a deal work. You can ring fence those particular clients and come up with a, with a solution to the succession. But one of the things, if someone's acquiring, they, they're going to want to look at the spread of the type of returns and the spread of value of fees. And the more spread it is, the more likely they're going to go, okay, we can handle this. You jump on board with 300 self-managed supers. If you're not set up for it, then you're not going to handle it well. Yeah. Looking at the workflows and the system set up in the practice that is for sale, I can imagine if you sell to a large practice, then the workflows and the system set up you've worked on is worthless because the clients will be transitioned into the buyer's setup and workflows anyway. But if you have a small practitioner taking over your practice, then of course there is value in the workflows and the setup. So would a small buyer therefore often pay a better price since the systems and the setup are something worse to him as well as well as the brand? Well, certainly if there's some compatibility around some of the software they're using, then this is going to be attractive to anyone because the first thing they ask is, you know, what are you doing yet? Yeah, are workflow you on, on and what what how are you processing yeah. are the you returns? on myob or are you yeah, on zero and or reckon or whatever else that they're how they're managing their practice but a lot of them now can do pretty good data conversions whether someone's going to pay extra not so sure but i think on the other flip side to this i think vendors are very fortunate people looking to sell at the moment are very fortunate that there doesn't seem to be a large distinction between practices that have got really good processes because a buyer will see that as a bit of a bonus as opposed to ones that, I hate to say it, like a garden shed out the back full of files, right? Or they've never scanned anything or they don't actually have a workflow process other than they just produce a tax return and get a client to sign. So I would say at the moment that's going to change because a lot of practices at the moment are really fighting for scale. There's increasing costs of running a practice, not just wages but software and insurance and rental and even energy costs, right, keeping the computers on. And so it is now a bit of a battle for growth and scale. And I even sort of see now the benchmark in Melbourne and Sydney being, if you're not turning over at least a million dollars, I think it's going to be a real hard slog going forward. So it's okay if you're turning over 300 million like uh, the top sort of five, five or six firms are. But if you're a smaller practice, it's getting really hard. And so if you're getting out at the moment and you haven't really done anything about your workflow and your processes in the last 10 years or you're scanning and you're still using a lot of paper, you can probably still get out at the same price. But I think as there's more consolidation and there's more medium-sized firms that have done acquisition, they're going to start to look reflect and they're going to go, well, hang on a minute, this cost us a lot more money in time and integration than we thought. So we can't pay, we don't want to pay a dollar for dollar anymore. So I do believe there will be some pressure on fees at some sort of point, particularly the ones that haven't actually brought their practice up to standard in terms of technology. If the practice that is for sale has all their clients on zero, all receipts, all paperwork comes through receipt bank and other softwares and the buyer is on the same apps, then the transition is incredibly easy. But if they don't, if they're on some desktop software and with files in the garden shed, 
then the integration must be very tedious. Absolutely. But for a, moment, for a first-time buyer and even sometimes a second-time buyer, that's okay. It, it's okay for now, for now. But do you think it would change? Yeah. And at the end of the day too, I, I sort of, if you're reflecting on your business and you, you think you're still going to be here in three to five years' time and you're not using services like Receipt Bank or you're not a zero partner or you haven't moved a lot of your clients into the cloud in terms of their accounting reporting or you don't have a dedicated workflow software, you're going to make your life hard because the other thing too is the thirst for data about your practice is getting higher. And if you have your data right and I say, can I get a postcode report or an age demographics report or, I mean, you can normally get that off the tax portal, how many different types of tax returns. But if I can say how many family groups you've got, how many clients under $1,500, over $1,500, over $5,000, and you can pretty much run reports on revenue categories or client by revenue and most of these software now can produce all these types of reports very quickly you're going to find that it's going to be two things can happen one the buyer is going to go why is it so hard for them to give me this information i want because they want they want to buy the business they also want the information and then the second thing would be that you're going to be spending a hell of a lot of time going through files to provide the information that they want so if you think you're you know, three years plus away, I would be attending technology conferences, accounting conferences, and in really getting in touch with those providers to see how you can improve your practice because you're going to either get left behind or then when you go to sell, you're going to be selling at a discount. Plus, I don't know how you'd want to operate so manually anyway. So when you want to sell, what data do you need to have ready at your fingertips? You hinted at it, so postcode report. An age structure, fee structure? I, I think they're probably more peripheral types of information. However, as someone gets deeper into it at, at a due diligence level and is about to sign off on a deal, they're going to start to go, well, hang on. We just want to make sure that your top 20 clients by revenue aren't all over the age of 70 because <laughs> they might be a $10,000, $15,000 client today in a $400 income tax return for a husband and wife estate <laughs> or just dealing with the estate never never to be seen again so i would say some the, the type of information that people want to see is certainly the first thing they ask is how many tax returns that's the obvious one what's the turnover they want to know the turnover in the last three years straight away what's the headline turnover then the next thing they want to know is how many company returns how many trust returns how many income returns and then they're going to want to know sort of by family groups so if this family group has two testimonial trust and they have a unit trust in a property and they have, and so they'll want to know. Yeah. If 90% okay, of your turnover is with one family group, then there is a problem. Yeah, concentration risk is what they want to look at. But it's yeah. also just to get an idea of if this client is $15,000, what are you doing for them? And if this client is $3,000, what are you doing for them? How many company returns? How many individual returns? So it's about getting an understanding of, Fee structure. The fee structure, yeah. And obviously then the next thing they ask about is things like how long the staff have been there and what are they getting paid, what are their qualifications. They'll normally want to know. Meet the staff and see I, I suppose what their personal skills yeah. are. Once they have all that sort of quantitative stuff, then the next stage is usually, okay, can we meet a couple of staff? Or they, they, they would go to a due diligence and sample files. And Are if, you involved at all in the due diligence? I suppose because I have to sort of remain a little bit independent, no. However, 
for the benefit of both parties, I normally provide a fair bit of guidance of what you might like to look at. Buyer, the potential buyer does the due diligence usually alone, but then usually two, three, four issues come up and then you work with the buyer and the seller to solve those issues that come out of the due diligence. That's exactly right, yeah. So I find sometimes they might sample six to ten files and if there's some concerns they might sample another six to ten files that are reflective of that so sometimes there's been the way intercompany loans have been characterized in a balance sheet and they'll say hang on we wouldn't do it this way i.e your client should be paying more tax so going forward we want to do it like this but even when you get these types of issues that come out of due diligence most of the times they're worked out Sometimes it might need mean a little bit of renegotiation of the, the deal, but not always, you know. Usually the buyers want to buy the business, so they'll normally, within reason, provided they're not finding something completely untoward, which I've got to admit, most accountants really do run their, let's say almost all accountants run their businesses so ethically, and, and it's one of the pleasures of actually selling in accounting practice because accountants just They just have a good reputation for being honest people and there's a reason for that. It's because they are. Welcome back. So to choose a buyer, look for character, culture, capability, cash and capacity. In the next episode, episode 218, Matthew Taylor will talk about the do-it-yourself sale of accounting practices. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.